0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I am thrilled to have in the studio today a celebrated actor of stage and screen. He's appeared in films such as the recent hit Beyond the Gates and FDR American Badass, as well as starred in the Reanimator stage musical. Please welcome to the studio today Jesse Merlin. Oh, thank you very much, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm delighted to have you. I'm going to ask you the same first question that I ask all of my guests, and it's simply this: Why horror? Why mm. are you drawn to this? What's your your point of entry? What interpret however you will? Why horror? There's a couple different answers
1: to this question. I'm going to go in one direction. I think horror. You. I was just listening to your wonderful episode with Jeffrey Reddick, and it's like horror is not about the fright. It's about the. It's about the catharsis. It's about the thrill. And, you know, something about horror, when it works, is it's truly cathartic in the Aristotelian sense. It makes Mm -hmm. you lean forward, you can't lean back, particularly like Stuart Gordon movies. Something about the great auteurs, they reach inside you and they twist. And there's something about the immediacy, you know, it's like watching people get killed... With a machine gun is not present in the way as watching a finger get cut off. You know, yeah. there's there's something in the way we approach our own mortality and our own completeness as individuals. So, I get part of it for me is 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 the catharsis, is the fact that it's one of the last genres uh, where you can take risks and reliably make money on a small budget. So, smaller projects and more esoteric, offbeat stuff can get produced that would be harder uh, harder sells in almost any other sphere. And also for someone with an unusual talent, I feel like this is like the last frontier. And um, and uh, it, if you have an unusual voice, if you have an unusual presentation, and then you if you bring something really unusual to the table, Hollywood doesn't always have a place for you. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to find your own place. And for me, it was, you know, I for a few years I was like the singing horror musical guy. I did um, reanimated the musical two hundred times, two hundred decapitations, no waiting. <laughs> I, so I did reanimated the musical for on and off for five years in L.A., Vegas, New York, and Europe, and um, and then. Um, and then I was a hip-hopping exorcist priest in a 70s prog rock musical, of The Exorcist, called Exorcistic. And then I played Hannibal and four other roles in uh, Silence, the musical. So that was kind of my racket for a while. And, uh, and I still love it. It's, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is the greatest genre for, uh, for the offbeat talent, I would think.
0: So would you say, based on that, that horror is the genre that elevates the outsider?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. You, you draw it in with a connection with, with queer studies and with the queer experience. I mean, it's all, you know, a lot of great, um, I, I, kind of the alpha and the omega for me, both in terms of uh, personal uh, l- narrative literature and, and uh, autobiography and also uh, queer autobiographical cinema is The Naked Civil Servant, starring mm. John Hurt about the life of Quentin Crisp. And when you examine something like that, that's just an example. When you look at something like The Naked Civil Servant, it is a, an icon of gay storytelling and gay, gay cinema, but it's also just a well-told tale of the experience of the outsider. And the fact that he's gay or was understood to be gay at the time is kind of incidental to that. To right. anybody, anybody, it's like in his example, and I think this is common in a lot of different ways: it's not sexual behavior that's threatening, it's sexual ambiguity. It's, right. it's the gender, not the sex, that's threatening to people. Um, and what's so interesting, um, and I, I had to bring him up, it's funny, I, I pulled out his book of, of film reviews called How to Go to the Movies, <laughs> uh, Mr. Crisp was a good friend of mine in the 90s, his number was listed in Manhattan and he would meet anybody, and it, like well into his 90s he would meet anyone for lunch at the Cooper Square restaurant on 2nd Avenue and 5th Street, and I remember he says, I will sit in the window like a Dutch prostitute. And he would just <laughs> sit there and people would wander in off the streets, and I, at one lunch I had friends sitting with him at a table and about a dozen gutter punks just descended on the table and and it was like he I was sitting at a, as a retainer on the steps of some wicked throne uh, because uh, because yes you know from from I, I reign in hell to I serve in heaven those were his alternate biography titles from New York and England but um, but uh, yes no you're asking about the 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 outsider experience and and I think that is something trying to find the best way to articulate that. What it is that's so universal. I mean, what could be more universal than death or disfigurement or fear of death, you know? Um, uh, Ironically, that's what makes you feel the most alive, you know? Well,
0: and it's interesting because in uh, your initial answer, you referenced, you know, watching machine gun death as opposed to seeing a finger being cut off. Mm. And I've I've had this discussion with people who will, you know, kind of hurl... uh, accusations that horror movies are sick or twisted or whatever but there are also people who intake a lot of action films mm. and especially the action movies of the 80s i think they're just as violent if not more violent than horror movies but when you have that disconnect where it's bruce willis in an elevator with a gun and a guy down the hallway as opposed to the intimacy mm. and i think there's a connection to that otherness when we we have that intimate relation to the fear we connect it to our own kind of intimate fears of the world itself. And uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of like wool-gathering myself. I'm thinking...
1: No, there's a universality to it. You know, I think almost any woman is going to connect... Uh, with With being followed home alone at night a common mm-hmm. trope in, in horror cinema in the same way that uh, a queer person is going to understand night fear with the fear of being bashed yeah. or, or or persecuted in, in, in some way um, and those things trigger with us um, but uh, how wonderful that we 've come to an era where you know the gay character doesn 't automatically need need to die. I was musing on that, listening to your interview with jeffrey it 's like Something that I think is common in in horror is um, is the moral story for each character. It's like, right. well, Mrs. Voorhees disapproves of horny teenagers; you're all going to die, right? That's right. the most that's the most straightforward. But then it's just like, well, oh, they had sex; they're going to die. This kid's gay; he's going to die. This person's in a wheelchair; oh, he's definitely going to die. Right. You know, it's just like these things aren't necessarily moral defects, but anything like there's always some or traditionally there's often a reason right. for what for what happens to characters.
0: Um, Well, and especially that set of rules, even Mm. though those movies were kind of considered the uh, outsider films or the the rebellious movies, uh, they kind of did prescribe to a Reagan era morality in the degree that they wanted all the teenagers to be these virtuous, sexless kind of people. Um, And I think that we've seen a bit of the shift because we also know that's unrealistic Mm. and I don't know. I'm just. I'm, I'm very interested in that.
1: Something. I wonder if you've come across this as well. I. I often wonder if the most popular trends in uh, in the narrative style echo in some way what's happening in larger society. You know. I'm right. sure there's a thesis or a dissertation here about how. Vampire movies coincide with the rise of AIDS. You know, it's just like blood fear, sex right. fear. You know, uh, Dario Argento just last week or a couple of weeks ago was talking about opera and how about opera really is all about AIDS. No one gets laid in that movie. You right. know, like there's so much fear around sex and so much frustration. And I, I think it's like, well, okay, if, if we're going to draw some kind of linear connection between AIDS and and vampire and blood fear, is like. Is basic economic survival fear what drives us toward zombie movies or toward apocalyptic movies? Do these come in into more relevance after something like September 11th? Right. After a, a big economic upheaval, you know. And, and I love the ways, I love the more subversive ways that not everybody examines. Something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is very basically Marxist. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very, very, um, uh, you know, almost dialectical in its critique of class relations in America. And and that's like the kind of thing someone could watch the movie be blown away from it and not even examine that or realize it, but the tension between the well-heeled city slickers and the the angry the angry country people. Like there there's a whole class element there. We see that's a really common one throughout. Yeah. Uh, horror that that's always under the surface. Well, and you know?
0: especially those ones that are often dismissed as, quote, hillbilly horror. But mm. but what's what are you really saying when you say that? You know, you're talking about a class divide. Right. Uh And it's interesting that you mention the HIV AIDS narrative that exists in horror because especially with relation to the no sex you die rule. Uh, Several years ago, I was doing a queer panel at Comic-Con and someone asked about uh, HIV narratives in the 80s and horror movies. And uh, there was sort of the, the realization, although it's not discussed, that when you look at the horror movies of the 70s, there was a sexuality to them. And you know, with Hammer and a lot of the exploitation films and what Herschel Gordon Lewis, Lewis was doing, like, sex was very open and part of the the horror landscape. And then the eighties begin and automatically there's that kind of the scream rule if you have sex you die. Mm. And it seems puritanical. Well, it comes in with Reagan, almost like right. on the clock. Yeah. But also by the same token, it could be read as an AIDS warning as well. Because mm. right. What other way are you going to reach the kids of America than horror movies? And it's a it's a tumultuous time. So and that it is. It's interesting when you sit down and watch these movies that are considered to be kind of like pop culture eye candy and peel back the layers. There's commentary, and I love that.
1: Well, so and yeah, I think about something like like Rocky Horror, which. In, in some ways may look very dated and uh, certainly people have i mean even the identity of Frank as a character is really problematic for people now yeah um uh, in terms of queer theory like there's all sorts of baggage that comes with it but people don't understand that the the vanguard of that first first few years of Rocky Horror was the gay liberation front it mm-hmm. was it was an, a movement in queer politics that does not Parallel to what's happening today. It was it was outright radical revolutionary politics that you might see to a certain degree in Black Lives Matter or in other groups now, but not so much in the more mainstream gay uh, you know, political movement like Rocky Horror was was championed in those early years by GLF. And now it's very now it's become uh, very mainstream, very suburban, very white and very straight. When yeah. you, when you, which is, you know, I don't know that's any, is particularly lamentable. That's just the trajectory of success with, with films in America. But it definitely signifies something different to a very different audience now.
0: Well, it's true because the things no. that were once radical, eventually, it's like if you, you live long enough to become the enemy or the mainstream or however mm-hmm. the term you want to use. Uh, I would have never believed that Rocky Horror would be a, a TV special on a network station when i was growing up because it seemed like the ultimate late night counterculture if five years ago you told me at the la convention center they were going to have a convention that was celebrating drag queens and moms and their daughters from the midwest were going to attend i would have thought well no i mean this is punk rock and this is Mm. late night bar culture moms and their daughters in the midwest don't want to come to this but they do and so there's always there's always a shift so i kind of find it Interesting, but I also find it exciting because mm. what's next? What's new? What's going to be transgressive to come?
1: That's a good point. And there's always the attendant risks of the com- commodification that comes along with success. You know, yeah. whatever was edgy or original at the beginning um, may lose some of that, right, as it be- it reaches a major- larger audience. And you know, there's cl- absolutely. Catastrophic levels of alcohol and drug abuse in the in the gay community, you know, right. and you know, and just in just marginalized communities at large, and yet, that's also our primary sponsors. You know, right. at some point, I mean, I don't know. You probably, you know, like there was a shift in the '90s in terms of what like, pride celebrations meant. So, right. you know, you know, again, going back to the GLF, going back to true Marxist politics in the '70s to brought to you by Bud Light and you right. know, the NFL. Um, no, from but, Act Up to presented by
0: Absolute. Basically.
1: That's a big part of it. And, yeah. you know, like, what did ACT UP mean? ACT UP mean putting your values on the line and being willing to get arrested. Right. You know, if you look at the footage from, say, the the day of grief at Grand Central Station, it's like, it's unimaginable mm-hmm. that something like that could happen now, I think. But um, I must feel like a, 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 a terrible, a terrible old bore. I just, I, I don't know that things were anything better in the past, part of better in a, a time gone by, but perhaps, perhaps things... In a sense, we're we're clearer in terms of, of what one has to stand for. One one has to uh, stand up against. Right. Um, yeah. You know what's happening right now in terms of Hollywood culture with the Weinstein scandal. It's like everything. Right. The the entire House of Cards has been kind of been laid bare, and we realize all of these unpleasant truths. Like. Um, Communication doesn't exist in power structures when there's no equality. That's just a basic, basic tautology of, of information theory, right? But like now we're all having to face this in right. a very real way. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody knew all along this is just one example of many. And right. how is it going to be different? I, I don't I don't know. And of course, I mean, Lord, let's not even get started on. I mean, does it is it even radical to suggest similar things exist in the queer world? I mean, it's like we all know we could all list them right now, but, but nobody will. And uh, because it takes you know.
0: someone to start the fire, mm. but sometimes mm-hmm. we need that first match to burn something down. In this case, the patriarchy. And then what's next? You know, and. Uh, We are in desperate need of restructuring. And I think that there was a complacency that happened a long time across many communities where it was pride presented by absolute instead of remembering Mm. that we still have plenty of causes to march for. Uh, You know, when a tragedy like Las Vegas happens and gay Mm. men can't even donate blood still because we're not considered equal. That's a problem. Right And, you know, I enjoy a good cocktail, too, but I would like to, like, maybe not be considered a second-class human, and that should be more of a primary goal. Uh, But, yes, fun things, horror. Uh, You did mention Rocky Horror in the beginning, uh, and we talked a little bit about the transgressive power of that, so this does tie in. Uh, But I know that you are... uh, a fan of Rocky Horror and very connected to that community, mm. uh, and you've also been in some shadow casts and done some documentaries as sure. a member of Shadow Cast. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, no, it's an old hobby of mine. I was a, a full-time opera singer for eleven years, and I, I did a fair amount of traveling. Uh, I didn't have a big career, but I had a, a medium-sized regional career. So when I traveled, I would connect. Uh, I called it my pervert passport. You can connect with all the wrong people wherever you go. So when <laughs> I when I did, uh, I was living in Paris for six weeks doing a really actually terrible uh, modern classical electronic project. But it was great to live in Paris. And my French family became the the French cast in the Latin Quarter right across the bridge from Notre Dame. And that was like, they're still very close to me. And I'm close with the people in New York and New Jersey and, um, and other international casts. And I'm involved with some of the conventions. But, uh, but yeah, I love it. You know, it's funny, I, I was one of the producers for the 35th anniversary convention here in Los Angeles called SinsCon. And Barry Bostrick was our guest. Uh, along with Cliff DeYoung and Jessica Harper from Shock Treatment. And then, literally, a couple months later, Barry and I uh, ended up in FDR American Badass together, and he was playing FDR, and I was playing Werewolf Hitler. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was a fun movie. I went on to make a, another movie with Barry called Helen Keller versus Nightwolves. Um, and that was a lot of fun. We had some great scenes together. I, I had at least three or four very uncomfortable gay come on scenes with him, where I was like the really the rudest and most inappropriate come ons. Um, and that was a lot of fun, and uh, <laughs> uh, and then I did another Ross Patterson movie called Range Fifteen. But it's like my old agent Re- David Sachs, this wonderful guy. May, may he rest in peace. He called me up one day, and you know exactly what your agent thinks of you based on what they submit you for. And he, I yeah. remember he said, "Jesse, I've got I've got the role you were born to play. You're gonna be perfect. You'll be perfect as werewolf Hitler. You're gonna you're gonna love it. It'll be great." And uh, it's like okay thanks David I know I'm really going out for the model roles <laughs> um, but yeah no I do I do uh, there's, there's much um, much about particularly about the community that I love um, in terms of Rocky Horror and it's w- one of the things you know because I'm also I, I have different fandoms I, I love uh, I love classic Doctor Who since childhood I go to some conventions for that and and something about, I think, Rocky Horror that makes it different from other fandoms is it's it's a fully performative tradition. Most right. people, you know, no matter how well they dress up, they don't go out and reenact their movie. They don't recreate right. their characters on a regular basis. It's it's almost like iterative acts. It's like, it's what I call it, freak church. You right. know, it's the same kind of call and response people get almost from a, from a Catholic mass. Do you remember the first time you saw the film? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, It was before I started sneaking out every night. It was, yeah, I was 14. So it was, uh, yeah, kind of near the peak of its, I think it peaked in terms of activity in 1990, around the Mm -hmm. 15th anniversary, right when they brought in home video, and then it started to decline. But no, at its peak in America, it was almost 300 screens. It was 300 uh, casts on a weekly basis. Maybe now there's 50 or 60.
0: Earlier when we were discussing The Answer to Why Horror mm. you, you really dug into the idea of identity mm. And uh, the celebration of the outsider But um, Were you An early fan of the genre Just uh, you know, growing up Or did you adopt it later And was Rocky part of your entry point Or oh, Interesting
1: um, I was a big sci-fi kid growing up There were certain horror movies I really did connect with But they tended to be the intersection like Alien Where, right. where, where horror intersects with, with sci-fi um, I wasn't really allowed to watch it, so certain things I saw either at Tower Video or other places or on TV when I wasn't supervised. I mean, I remember seeing The Thing when I was maybe seven on holiday at right. somebody's house and I was unsupervised, and that just blew my mind, the John Carpenter, and and then seeing Dawn of the Dead and having nightmares for years. But I really, got, I think my gateway drug, uh, was as a teenager, I, I got... Uh, I got really into certain goth industrial radio and they played Goblin a lot. Oh, and wow. so Goblin brought me to Argento movies and that brought me to the whole world of Jalo back in the days when you had to find like, you know, something weird, VHS bootlegs to get the different right. versions of it. There were there were no official releases for any of this stuff. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, no, and Reanimator was one of the first movies I really connected with. I was probably 18 and I was at NYU and my roommate showed it to me and I just, it was like, it's like a come to Jesus moment seeing that right.
0: movie for the first time, so let's talk about reanimator, sure, because from that being a come to Jesus moment, mm. seeing this film, seeing that head in the pan, to becoming the head in the pan sure. on in the musical version, how did you meet Stuart Gordon and end up in the musical version of reanimator
1: it was a, It was a dream come true, and it was kind of it was never uh, it was never a slam dunk. I kind of had to fight for it. I had starred in a show. Uh, I moved to L.A. in 2006. I was born here, but I moved here as an adult in 2006 after completing an artist residency up in Northern California at Opera San Jose. So i have been singing classical music for a long time. And I moved to L.A., and I randomly found my way into this show called The Beastly Bombing, which was a big hit in 2006, 2007 at the Steve Allen Theater, and it was a lighthearted comedy written in operetta Gilbert and Sullivan style about terrorism, with singing and dancing Arab terrorists and skinheads and mm-hmm. and Hasidic Jews. And I played this like sexual dynamo freak character of the president. I was like the modern major general, um, <laughs> but, you know, somewhere between the worst elements of Bush and Clinton. It was a big September 11th satire, but it was a hit. And I actually went and did it in um, New York and I went and did it in Amsterdam. But that was the theater where Stewart was developing reanimator years later. And so Amit Itelman from the Steve Allen Theater had put me forward when Stewart was was first interviewing people for the workshops and I remember the excitement this was 2010 they'd seen a few different people and and I was up for Herbert West at first um Uh, And I really, I mean, I was just prepared and I watched the movie again. I took notes I made all these choices, memorized all the music. And I felt like I did well. I did a creditable job and they were impressed. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get it. Never got a call. (laughs) And I was devastated. I was really upset. And six months later, right before they were about to go into production, uh, their Dr. Hill dropped out because he was never going to, I don't think he was ever going to actually do the physical stunts and stuff. So they'd had someone do the readings, but he just dropped out. And so, like, one more chance, Amit Edelman put me up. He's like, Stuart, you got to see this guy again. Give him another chance. Let him come in as Dr. Hill. And that was just the right role. But I knew it was, this was like one of these, one of these watershed moments. You don't want to let it get uh, past you. So I did, the Peter Sellers um, had a famous story. He'd had some success in radio, but because of his unusual look, no one had given him a chance in television or film. And he was tired of being rejected by agents. So he went in for a, a character of a, playing an old veteran And they just totally dismissed him, wouldn't even give him the time of day. And he came back in heavy prosthetic makeup and in character and like sold the deal right there. They hired him instantly and they took off his hat and he said, let's talk about my fee. <laughs> and it was one of these things, It's like one of these great, like they could absolutely have thought he was insane, but it's just like, sometimes you have to show them you can do the part. So, cause this is a really small theater. It was like 85 right. seats without the wall out. So I came in in my best uh, hairpiece and age makeup and a suit, which is not something I normally recommend doing in auditions. Cause right. they tend to think you would be nuts. But you no, know, Stuart came up to me and kind of squinted in that way. Yes, he's just like how old are you? And I was like, well, I'm 33, Stuart, But I, I, I promise, I play older. It's what I do. And so that's how I got my way into it. And I've just, I've just ever looked back. It's just like from my cold, dead fingers. Now, yeah, 200 performances. It was a dream come true because Stuart, he's just like this Zen, uh, happy, smiling, generous Buddha of horror. He's, right. he's so sweet. He's like your grandfather, but he's got this demented imagination. And uh, it's just a joy to work with. He he does things other directors doesn't do. Every rehearsal, the entire process started with theater games. Like, there would always be 15 minutes of, like, theater games. It's like, no one does that. Um, not since college. Uh, it's not even in professional theater. So that was a joy, and... And working with George Wendt, you know this wonderful comedic genius, and uh, Graham Skipper, and he and I, who's gone on to become a, quite a director and actor in his own right. Um, but it all started right there, gosh, about six and a half years ago. We made this soundtrack last summer, oh, uh, wow. and I'm dying. I haven't even heard it yet, but I hear it's pretty good. I'm really hoping that will come out soon, and I'm impatient for a for a future production because we've had a lot of interest in, and how wonderful, you know, doing something that's just not a parody. That's actually a An adaptation And it was almost Scene for scene We were were recreating These famous Iconic
0: moments And you traveled All over the world You listed some of the cities Earlier A little bit yeah yeah. Were there any uh, Standout moments from, From traveling around That Things that happened On the road Oh
1: sure I mean all sorts Of crazy stuff Um New York was probably. I really hope we get a, an extended run at some point. New York felt like the right place. Mm-hmm. We sold out before we got there. It was just a festival run, so we had like half a dozen performances, but it was sold out weeks before we arrived. We had and the Times loved us. They printed right. a review with my severed head. Like they don't do this for LA <laughs> shows, right? So we're like, oh yeah, this we're set. We're gonna be in, and it just didn't happen. Um, so hopefully that is yet in the future. But um, I'm trying to think, it's it's. So so dangerous. We, I, I, the, when the, you know, we have a splash zone where we we, we soak the audience with blood. Uh, the front three rows and, and there's blood spraying everywhere when I get decapitated and I have to climb into a kind of a, a puppetry rig where I carry my severed head around while, while singing. It, which is difficult to describe. You kind of have to see a picture of it. Um, in terms of funny anecdotes, gosh, I'm trying to think. We we did uh, we did some public performances of decapitation I remember just the accept, just getting a taste of mm-hmm. of success early on we went and did in the big hall at the weekend of horrors the creation entertainment thing we did the whole decapitation scene and I just remember it's like okay clean off the, the blood off the stage because we got to get John Carpenter up on stage it's just like, okay it's like okay we can do this we can we can handle this but um it's just uh, it's just been a role of a lifetime. And it, it is still a challenge in a sense because cause, uh, Graham Skipper, who's, who played Herbert West, uh, just a wonderful star of Almost Human and The Mind's Eye, and he's in Beyond the Gates with me. His new movie, Sequence Break, that he's directed is just out. He looks like Jeff, and you see him as his character. You know it's him. Right. But like when I'm Dr. Hill, it very very rarely have any, has anyone recognized me out of makeup because cause he's an older character. I have to right. wear wigs to ma- match the heads. Um, I... Uh, I, I do hope there's more in the future, but it was such a dream. I, and I just getting to know these the team behind it. I've stayed with Dennis Peoli a couple of times, uh, who wrote that and From Beyond, and it was Dennis's Stewart's College best friend. You yeah. know, so they go back to the beginning, and and I and I think about them. I think about Dennis calling up Stuart and saying, Stuart, I've got it. I've got the first visual pun in the movie. It's a head giving head. It's like <laughs> like in that moment, like they guaranteed its immortality. And, and that makes it special too. Also working with Barbara Crampton. Now uh, we've you know we met opening night of Reanimated the musical, and she was very supportive and very sweet. And uh, and how wonderful that she went on to star in and produce Beyond the Gates. So we kind of as since tragically David Gale is long dead,
0: as the living Doctor Hill, she and I have a, a special friendship. You know, <laughs> it's a it's it's a connection through Reanimator that that you all share, and that's really. And you've worked with Stuart. Uh, on other plays since, yes. Yeah, recently, no, I always say all roads lead to Stuart Gordon. Um, Yeah, we just did
1: uh, Sirens, The Sirens of Titan, this Kurt Vonnegut play that his company, the Organic Theater Company, did with Vonnegut. They developed Mm -hmm. it in 77, uh, and it was a hit, and they traveled with it, and no one had done it since, so that was really fun, and um, we did that at Sacred Fools with Ben Rock directing, very talented director, and uh, I hope we get to do it again. I was playing a three-foot alien robot, Sphere, (laughs) <laughs> which was even worse than Dr. Hill it was basically like I was du- hunched up double on my haunches and like a, it, the, it was a puppetry builder for the Muppets who'd built this plush kind of alien creature and it was absolute torture so I'm running around basically on the balls of my feet about three feet high m- running uh, running tentacles and, and rods and stuff but but that was a delight and, and Stuart um, uh, yeah no I'm, I'm impatient to work with him again and oh and I should say another connection also Brian Usna it just got announced. He's attached to Beyond the Gates too, uh, so he's working on that as a producer, which right. I'm really excited about because you know, you know Bar- Brian and Barbara, as far as I know, haven't worked together since um, since From Beyond, and I right. think that's overdue because they're both fantastic
0: people. Let's talk about Beyond the Gates. Oh, sure. Uh, this is a really remarkable movie, Thank which you. is uh, steeped in nostalgia, especially for a very specific kind of item from late '80s, early '90s pop culture. These. <laughs> board game video combos. I remember my cousin and I used to watch one that was clue oriented where they oh, sure. were like trapped in a hotel and there were these actors and you would pause the tape and play uh, but it's so fun and it, it hits, hits those points of reference in a very earnest way that a lot of films reaching for that nostalgia bubble often miss mm. uh, tell me you. a little bit about getting involved in that project yeah, well, Jackson Stewart had
1: been Stewart's assistant at one time, like mm-hmm. Joe Bigos, uh, also talented director of Almost Human and The Mind's Eye. Uh, and Joe was our stage manager, and made animated the musical originally. But Jackson had started as an intern and then writing coverage for him and working as his assistant. Right. And that's how he met all of us. And we did some short films together. We did a project called The Cartridge Family um, that he wrote, and then also Sex Boss, which is a comedy short starring me and Graham, which is on the Blu-ray of Beyond the Gates. But um, he'd had this idea and it was just it was just a million dollar idea. He and uh, Steven Scarlatta, who was a co-writer who also produced uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Mm-hmm. This is a really great documentary filmmaker. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a great movie. And um, and uh, and they he'd come up with this and it, it just hit the uh, it just kind of hit the right nostalgia bell. You know, it's such a. Such an, i mean, there's haunted board games. That's that's a sure. classic trope. But like the a lot of especially our younger friends like wouldn't have no experience with the VHS video right. board game. Um, so that was, that was great fun. It was a very brief shoot for me. It was just one day I did two scenes and then he'd shown the early cut to a bunch of people and pretty much everybody had the same note or the one note kept coming back. It's like, we need more of this guy and we need more of Bria Grant. And so they wrote us a scene together and we shot it several months later. And that was really nice. That was our scene together in the parking lot where she confronts me about the game. And it doesn't really advance the plot, but you get to see inside her a little bit more and I get to... The more I watch it, the more I'm I realize it's like, wow, I'm really, I'm really trying I I, I hope I'm not doing a direct lift of Klaus Kinski and crawl space. Because there's something I love that he does so much where he's when he's listening or watching you, he just kind of keeps moving his lips. Yeah. You know, there's something I love I always try and find the the predator. The, if there's a predatory character, there's gonna be some kind of predatory menace physically. Mm-hmm. The Dr. Hillett's in his teeth. And you oh, see yeah. he has these monstrous teeth because he has this really unique face. So I'm always like Bleeding through my teeth With him But Elric was just fun There was very He's very mysterious There was very little On the page You know In terms of just You know Wanting it to be A deliberately Ambiguous character So right. I, I brought in We shot at this Crazy little place The Bearded Lady I think on Magnolia And Burbank Which is this curio shop Right and, and it was a costume I had great, it was my all my own stuff, and I had great fun, more or less the same costume I wore in Helen Keller versus Nightwolves. But it was, I had great fun collecting it because it was all period stuff. I had played Oscar Wilde in a, a queer theater piece called uh, Carved in Stone, with, which is a great play. I hope we get to do it again. It's Oscar Wilde, Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, and Quentin Crisp together in the gay literary afterlife with cameos from Betty Davis and Judy Garland. And
0: now, how was it to do a show? That features a character that's actually someone you knew.
1: That was you see, that was really interesting. Yeah. So no, no just so just the finish. So it was my Oscar Wilde costume that I'd assembled. And it was all like 19th century stuff. So all this stuff i would gotten in Europe. And that was that was wonderful. That was really meaningful. And I helped produce it and raise the money because I really it was it was special to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to play the character, my friend Leon Acord, who's a very talented guy. He he has the web series Old Dogs and New Tricks. It's a, for a, a gay dating comedy for older men. Um, or just a great, great writer and colleague, but he would, he really he had done Quentin in San Francisco, and I remember I'd been living up north when that happened, and I wasn't ready to go see it. I was really, I took his death really hard. I mean, he was almost 91. It wasn't a surprise, but it was, he had a uniquely tragic death, and there was a lot, and the story, well, it was tragic and also partially self-inflicted and complicated, and the story had never really been fully told, so I wasn't quite ready to see it when right. I, I had fully processed it. Oh, no, but it was magical. And um, and it was meaningful because I didn't, you know, just being on stage with his avatar. Right. I mean, it meant a lot to me. I, I, um, you know, as as a young bisexual queer kid figuring all this out, I never came out. I was outed. I had to leave home when I was sixteen. I was thrown out. I had a really traumatic go of it. And I, uh, and what really saved my life was was his book. Was finding like right before, and we're very close now. We worked through all of this, but before my mother outed me and basically threw me out, right? I. Um I uh, or I, I was had to leave home. I found his book and mm-hmm. it was it was through reading the naked civil servant and embracing, you know what at the time, and understandably he just articulated it as a burden and as a, as a tragedy, a personal tragedy, in, embracing that and elevating it into a cause right and That was for him the liberating moment of it. Um, so that was really special, but also, you know, Oscar Wilde, of course, is just one of you know, speaking of tragedy and horror, like no one's made, as far as I know, the great Oscar Wilde horror tragedy movie yet. And that's in terms of a personal life. Right. It's one of the greatest horror stories. You know, in terms of 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 a, of a rise and decline and fall, mm-hmm. you know, the movie Stephen Fry did in '98 was fantastic, but right. it's like there's there's a whole horror element there. Yeah, you know? it doesn't
0: touch upon some of the darker.
1: Well, no, and the closest anyone has gotten, in in terms of narrative that I've read, and there's probably some books out there I haven't read, is um, Melmoth uh, by Dave Sim in the Cereb- Cerebus books. Mm-hmm. Uh, these amazing graphic novels. Oscar Wilde is a running character, and there's a whole story there, the Melmoth graphic novel about his decline and it's about him slowly going insane and i have to say you know not not particularly a, a, you know just in terms of oscar wilde that was always a tremendous influence you know if, if for those of us in la if you don't realize one of the three great oscar wilde archives in the world is here it's at the ucla clark library and it's open to the public people don't know it exists it's almost on the usc campus so people don't realize it's part of ucla uh clark um was this kind of uh, eccentric homosexual heir in the 20s uh, to <laughs> one of I think, the great oil fortunes of LA and he invested his money collecting arts so it's amazing it has all these ephib these pederastic ephebes painted up in the cornices of the walls and and you can go there and just give them your driver's license and and tell them what you want and you can basically handle and review manuscript Oscar Watt letters and papers
0: oh a like, must visit like,
1: yeah no yeah. even non-scholars oh no it's amazing but you know Wilde also has a very special place in my heart and a lot of ways I mean it's like his his genius his wit and his plays made him made him iconic made him legendary but his tragedy made him immortal right and it's if I think people are drawn to that as much as anything else is like what is it the fascination of wounds that are self-inflicted you know it's um but um I've been lucky it's funny we have we have these different characters. I've known Stephen Fry for almost 20 years now, and oh my God, is as, as close to a living Oscar Wilde as we're going to have someone in terms of that level of erudition. Absolutely. But he was perfect to play it, and he he understood the, the humanity and... And it's funny, you know, one, one of my own personal life's nights of terror, I, I had the best and the worst night of England you could imagine. I remember Stephen's old partner, Danny, and I uh, were guests. He was hosting a big Ian Fleming charity benefit in London in 2008, and I just happened to be in town promoting this Project and I went and it was amazing and all of the Bond girls were there and Roger Moore and it was you know it was Stephen's personal get it was amazing and it was mm-hmm. my last night in London I I took a long bus home and I went to all the different court because because you can go to the I think the what is it the Magnitsky restaurant like the courthouse where he started his descent is now is now a restaurant and you can go in and the courtroom where it all started is preserved in so original oh, wow. condition so I just went in. But then I also got jumped and bashed and nearly killed that night. So it was just like it was just like a typical, just random Clark Goren style London violence. And right. I I remember finding the tickets years later, like Ian Fleming charity benefit, Stephen Fry hosting, and like there's blood stains on it. Oh my god! You know, That's so so, so I was yeah, I was really lucky to survive that one. But that was funny. It kind of brought me into a kinship with both. You know, Quentin had been dead for a long time for 10 years at that point, but it's just like, oh, yes, now I've had my face mm-hmm. ground into the dirt in London. I feel a little closer to my
0: mentor. <laughs> Maybe not the way you wanted to to be drawn closer. No, yeah, it's yeah. true, but it was, yeah. Well, how about shifting gears? Certainly. To... Uh something less grave. Mm. Uh, but we were talking about, uh, horror and the connection to historical figures, which brings me to something I wanted to talk about. And you've mm. referenced these movies a little bit. Sure. Um, your roles, uh, in FDR, American badass and sure. Helen Keller versus night wolves. Right. And I'm really interested in this sort of new subgenre that has popped up with things like Abraham uh, Lincoln, vampire mm. hunter of historical horror revision. Um, do you what? What do you think that the interest is?
1: I'm not sure it's hot right now. I think it was hotter a few years ago. Right. And it it, it basically it had reached a level of, of absurdity before I even started participating in it. Right. I think it's it's just clever in the way that a magic door plot is clever. It's just right. that we can step through a door and be anywhere and come to combat with anyone. Great. Right. Simple. Simple narrative storytelling. Um, where I think it loses its way is it uh, many of these features take themselves far too seriously. Right. And FDR American Badass was a little bit of a of a comedy spin on, was like, oh, here, let's put a great, you know, heroic political figure, but we'll put him in a wheelchair with machine guns and rocket launchers fighting Nazi werewolves, and we'll tell the right. real story about World War II. Um, That's not that what happened. Fun. Yeah, right. No, that <laughs> was fun. It had a reasonable little audience. We did screenings here and there. It didn't get theatrical, and I... But it did get out. It was on Netflix for a little while. Um, Helen Keller was that was kind of a that was a that was the windmill we tilted at for a while because it was hard, you know. Ross Patterson is a very successful filmmaker and genre and writer and producer, and this one was just too edgy for anybody to want to take it. It's just right. like, you know, he and I don't necessarily see politically eye to eye on a lot of things, but mm-hmm. I I think he's a great artist and he's a great colleague and a and a great person, and and for whatever reason, Helen, you know. People may look at the subject matter and see it very offensive without having to right. approach it, but it's just like how many other filmmakers are making disabled action hero movies. Now True. we may think it's irreverent, but he made two in a row, right. and like whether or not it's okay to make fun of them in any context is simple. Some, I think it's a separate discussion. These are heroic characters in their own movies, and they kick ass. Right, and so basically, whatever ridicule is put on them is you know is is transformed by the end. Um, but yeah, no, so the, kind of the point of Helen Keller versus Nightwolves was to, was to look, I mean, at that, at that point in time, there were movies like, um, Hansel and Gretel, witch slayers. I mean, but that was like, oh, yeah. that was like a Jeremy Renner. I mean, it, or it right. was, some, it was some, it wasn't him. It was some big, it's like a $30 million movie. Right, it was right. just like, this is insane. So we're like, well, fuck this. We're going to take this to the logical extreme and we're going to make, we're going to make Helen Keller versus Nightwolves. We're going to
0: have a blind, deaf, samurai sword wielding action hero. And uh, Which, as, as you pointed out, is not something that happens very often. Well, so. well
1: right. Like, it's like, at what point do we have to stop getting offended on behalf of other people? It's like, right. you, you have to examine the material first. I think it's pretty funny. It's a movie. I don't know that it ever freely found the audience it deserved. Right. Uh, p- the angle we made when we made it was, it was always intended to be a free movie as right. an act of cultural jamming and sabotage. It's just like, oh, you're not going to put our movie out? Fuck you. This is it. It belongs right. to the world now. And it always has been free. And we've had to, we've done some fun screenings of it, but uh, that was a fun character. That was one I, it was one of the only gay characters I've had to play. And that was, I, I, if you haven't seen it, it's it is problematic. I mean, is it like in the sense it's like, you, I don't know that it's necessarily incumbent on LGBT actors to only play good and and teaching or teachable gay characters. Right. It's like in an ideal world maybe, but that's not reality. It's like we right. have to be willing at some level without getting hateful or, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, like, truly hurtful stereotypes. Like, being willing to play the characters, it's like, well, there are going to be unpleasant people. There are going to be killers. There are going to be people who happen to be gay along with all of their other characteristics.
0: Yeah, on our Halloween special, uh, Thomas Decker and I dug into the idea that there was a point in gay cinema where just because we weren't being represented, we just needed to see positive representation Mm. first. But now in 2017, we have... A bit more of a cushion we have you know the the queer wave movement of the 90s we have the whole uh you know run of coming out teen movies the time is now to represent the full spectrum Mm. of lgbtq people in film and sometimes that means we're not always the good guys and so i agree uh i think that there are going there's going to be resistance but we need to show Multi-dimensional characters, and multi-dimension m- means that it's not always pretty.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know if you haven't seen it, it's um, I, I'm I, I am fond of my character William Keller in the movie. It's not that he's a bad character, um, but he's, you know he has tremendous fondness for his sister he has a heroic moment he has basically his worst vices are being alcoholic and being bitchy Mm -hmm. but the thing is when you you can take it's just like you know God forbid we portray this element of the gay experience but like for me when you have to play a character that does have certain like older fashioned or maybe hackneyed tropes is like, okay, at what level can I subvert them? At what level can right. I show the absurdity of it or just transform it into its opposite in some right. kind of Hegelian way, which I'm often trying to do. Like, I think that is, I, I always come back to Hegel when I talk about, I don't want to say trash cinema. I want to say fringe or genre, or low budget cinema It's just like, right. how do we do the transformation into opposite? How do we right. elevate something? So past terrible to the sublime. And uh, and yeah, no, it's, um, as long I, I think the things I would find truly morally problematic is if it were a narrative that like it's like, well, the gay character needs to commit suicide just because. Right. right. Like that's a lot more you know, problematic than somebody who just happens to be an asshole who also happens to be gay.
0: Right. You know? And I think that of course, because there's a transgressive nature to this film, um, and, and films like it, there is a different litmus by which we need to judge that content. And these movies were made in good fun, good subversive fun. Uh and in that vein, because I'm also, as I introduced this this topic, uh, minorly obsessed with the idea of historical revision. Mm. You, as someone who uh, is well read and studied, is there a historical figure that you would like to see a horror film made about?
1: A horror film? Oh yeah. wow! Um, well, there, there's a few out there that that could be. Oh, you know, the first one that comes to mind, I think, in terms of like. Successful or not, Caligula is a great one, and that's another <laughs> one that's like he's not—he's not really. The, I, I think he's more tragic than people realize. There's a few other great gay emperors that are less known, like Elagabalus, Heli- mm. Heliogabalus, who is who was notorious. I mean, the thing is, most Roman history is so uh, is so be, tends to be pretty—you know—if it's Gibbons, it's anti-Christian. If it's a lot of other ones, it's going to be anti-gay. Um, right. But like, he was always. Called the degenerate, the profligate. Right. I'm pretty sure he was murdered by the time he was 17 or 18, and mm. he had big gay orgies for a few glorious years in Rome, and then was murdered by his own guards very young. So, Elagabalus is is another one. Gilles de Ray would be one I think would be really interesting to uh, to approach, especially now that um, Gilles de Ray uh, people probably would best know him for his association with uh, Joan of Arc. He was mm. one of her lieutenants and. Um, uh, he basically there was a, a public trial where he was accused and convicted of I think, murdering and torturing in necromantic ways over a hundred, hundred and fifty boys. It was a big mass killing trial, in uh, in the you know in the middle in the middle Middle Ages in France. And um, and now some of the research suggests that maybe I mean he was one of the not- most notorious mass murderers of history. Now research seems to suggest it may have been trumped up. It may not actually have been true as a lot of these atrocity trials tend to be. Right. But I think that's one that comes to mind. Gosh, in terms of other great gay killers, um, I thought some, I know some, who's doing the murder house right now? There's, there's a, a few different people are doing the 19th century murder house guy. Oh, uh, Stuart um, was doing something about that or somebody else is developing it for television. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, like. and of course, in this moment, I'm blanking. Yeah, but. I know the great American mass killer. And I've done a few, gosh, in terms of non-semi, um, here's one. You know, I I like the movie Monster. I think there's much to recommend it. It doesn't really tell the true story of Eileen Warnos very well. Right. And that's one, not necessarily, role rolling it for me. I did, I just like to tell people when I was... Did some strange operas I, I played uh, The sexually abusive Grandfather In the lesbian Serial killer opera We did an opera Of Eileen Warnhouse That's a,
0: a great sentence By right? the way Yeah <laughs> right. it's like I used to
1: put it On my resume Like I, I should just Put grandfather I don't think Sexually abusive Grandfather is good
0: No but you have to Have the whole shebang <laughs> you know? Sexually abusive Grandfather In the lesbian, lesbian Serial killer saga. opera Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, It was funny And it was It was you know It was a
1: conflicted piece It wasn't perfect But it had right. really Interesting music And it was much closer To the true story than the right. film was, which is actually really heartbreaking and tawdry and tragic and sad. I mean, she was had the mental age of an eight-year-old and we right. basically executed a mentally ill person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, the, the character played by her, who, her lover in the film, who's Christina Ricci, basically was another middle-aged lesbian like her in real life who was complicit in the crimes, who right. basically just betrayed her. So it was like... Um, Oh, that's an interesting question. What, what, do you have an answer yourself? I mean, what do you, what do you
0: crave as a writer or, a, or an actor? What are you itching for, uh, for historical? I mean, historical figures, and it wouldn't even have to necessarily be someone who is an actual killer in life, because obviously, as we, we proved, you can have FDR fight werewolves. You can have Abraham Lincoln fight vampires. Um, you know, some of the people that I'm really interested in, though, have already been hit upon, but I could always use another Elizabeth Bathory film. There's just something about, you want to talk about someone whose history has been very conflated.
1: Oh, yeah, Countess but, Dracula, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: the, the, the notion that she had upwards of 600 people killed is, is staggering, just because, you know, I, that's you have to get up really early in the day. I know, where do you find the time? Yeah, um, yeah it's a good question. I, I saw a play about her in New York. I
1: think at La Mama in the 90s. That was dreadful. But I still remember it. It's just like, it's like we're doing performance art in New York. People are going to really shoot up on stage. It's going to be real heroin and real blood. <laughs> and it's like, oh no. This was old in the 50s.
0: You know, I would like to see a horror movie uh, featuring a uh, female impersonator like Charles Pierce. I would, oh Yeah, I th- God, but like
1: you know, greatest.
0: Charles Pierce goes undercover to stop, like, you know, dracula or something but he has to don all the different guises of of the hollywood women of yesteryear i'm gonna write this movie when i get home i love that
1: you you didn't know charles did you i think we're probably about a little too young to have known him
0: uh i know people who uh kirk fredericks wrote this amazing book uh, about charles pierce and they were friends and uh i know david of course knew him Yeah. yeah yeah
1: no i i it's so funny you name check him i love uh i'll tell you a little bit about my family background just at some point but um I'm a Betty Davis fanatic. I, I love Betty Davis. And so my best friend and I often have gone up to her tomb. If you haven't gone, it's worth a trip. She has mm-hmm. a, a sarcophagus with a stone angel, and it's her and her mother and her sister at the top of Forest Lawn, mm, North Hollywood, right. overlooking Warner Brothers, her empire. And it just says, <laughs> Betty Davis, she did it the hard way. And right around the corner from her, is Charles Pierce That's right and he's in a niche Around the corner from her You know near Copy Broccoli And Dio And Liberace And Carrie Fisher And Debbie Reynolds It's a whole little Neighborhood up there it's that, very... that, That's an amazing spot My favorite yeah. um, Charles Pierce For those <laughs> our, our astute audience I'm sure knows this But he was To my taste One of the greatest Female impersonators In terms of like Being able to sing And do right. improv And stand up And insult comedy And just one of the Greatest impersonators Particularly right. for Betty and Joan Well
0: leg- uh, Legendarily Uh, there was a night where Carol Channing came to see Charles Pierce and at the end stood up and said oh Charles you do me better than I do Ah. and uh, to be in the crowd to see
1: that I, the yeah. story I heard about Betty confronting him in the 70s once because she never liked she never liked female impersonators she, she didn't get it like yeah. she had lots of gay friends I mean she and Victor Bono were very close but I, I don't think she had quite grokked the fact that men were going to do her that Right. Was, so she came up to Charles I think she was introduced to him backstage. she said so I hear you do me <laughs> and he looked at her and he says do you I'd rather do Joan Crawford <laughs> which is his way of saying I'd rather fuck a corpse right you know right. Um, but, uh, no, I, I love, I love Charles Pierce and, uh, and I have a great fondness just for, for Betty in a lot of ways. And Warner brothers, one of my favorite pictures of my grandfather I have up is a picture of him and Betty Davis and Paul Muni, uh, standing in front of a radio, mic holding one of his scripts because oh, wow. he worked with her a lot in radio. And uh, yeah that's one of that's one of my long-term horror uh, bucket list things I'd really love to see somebody do either a, or do a revenge film or or some kind of film relating to the blacklist. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was a blacklisted union president. He had to testify and he wouldn't name names. He was a founder and president of the Writers Guild and he couldn't write under his own name for 8 years because he wouldn't name names and like you know we, we we my family paid a real price you know they yeah. they got through it they had a success afterwards but his career never fully re- recovered and he was very bitter about it for a long time so i think about that you know it's like you think about the blacklist era from the from the from the queer angle right. it's like there were not many queer uh, writers or I mean, forget it. If you were if you were queer in in Hollywood and you had radical politics, you had no choice. Yeah. But like, if you were a Cesar Romero, mm-hmm. for a long time, I was very I was very bitter against because a lot of the most famous queer stars were collaborators. They did name names and they were right. were friendly witnesses. But with some distance, it's just like I'm not in that situation. I can't judge. You know, right. I'm not facing having to lose everything right. just to maintain my integrity and not to compromise other people. It's just like. You know, you think about that, that's just one name I pick out of the hat, but it's just like, this was, this, you know, it affected it, it affected everybody, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, we found out he did, he died about 20 years ago now, but and he had also been, I mean, he produced the first movies with Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland at MGM in the thirties. He negotiated the first contract for anybody, including residuals in like 1940. I mean, he was a really interesting person and I, he'd been book a uh, critic for the LA Times for 35 years. So, I grew up in this house, f- that books and first editions everywhere, just books and books and books. Mm-hmm. and after he died, we found like a, the hidden sections of the basement where he'd moved all of his political books oh wow. like none of nothing to do with politics, even forty years later, they were all buried behind a secret bookshelf because I mean, he had whoac people come into the house. you know it's right. like for me it's like what's what's real horror? you know, horror is the things that interfere with that interrupt your life, that prevent you from working, that prevent you. It's like. You know, survival fear, right? And uh, it's like we're it, we're at one of those moments again. In in, right. in, a, in a, it's um. You know, trying to find the the topical relevance at the moment. You know, this very uncertain and kind of troubled time we live in politically. It doesn't exactly map to what people were facing back then. But have you ever been to the Botanicum? You know, the Theatricum Botanicum? Like yeah. That, yeah, that's that's a blacklist theater. That was because Will Gere was blacklisted and it was a place for him to do shows with his friends because no one could work. You know, it's like all these, a lot of these wonderful places we have are just holdovers from that era.
0: And... Normally, at this point in the show, I would ask you what you've been watching uh, in terms of Mm. current films. But because we're discussing classic cinema and uh, you are a great admirer of it, what are some classic films, uh, especially from that era, that you feel like people need to see? Oh,
1: people need to see. My God. Well, uh, (laughs) I tend to have esoteric tastes, I think, in terms of... um, uh, I would say one of the first ones I think people need to see in terms of classic cinema that's less appreciated for horror is Die, Die, My Darling.
0: Absolutely. Is, a hammer horror picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: No, because like I'm a Tallulah Bankhead fanatic yep. and she didn't make that many movies, but she made that one. Mm-hmm. Um, also, also with The Nanny, another great hammer horror that not yeah. many people have seen with Betty Davis. Um, in terms of classic horror, God, I really love, uh, Of course, the Universal Pictures. uh, You know, Silence, I've always been a a lover of some of the lesser-known Silence. You know, like um, The Lodger is probably one of Hitchcock's best movies that no one's seen. The great Ivor Novello, Silent. Um, I think for people really wanting to grapple with Uh, The more political side of uh, what I consider queer cinema and horror in the larger sense, I think Sallow is worth visiting, honestly. I think that's something people get so stuck on it as a sick flick and they don't understand what he was really trying to say. Um, uh, Pasolini in general, I mean, it's just, um, it's never been more topical, I think, in a lot of ways. Salah particularly uh, Sweet Movie is another interesting one <laughs> Sweet Movie is great <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah it's just... well great great in that way that you will always remember seeing it oh of course yeah. and I always steer people you know most of your listeners are probably well past this but you know to the seminal works of Kenneth Anger like if you mm-hmm. want to understand queer cinema you gotta see obviously Rope you gotta see Fireworks Scorpio Rising Lucifer Rising Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome Um, some of the the films of Jack Smith you know it's um, yeah. You know, gosh, I'm trying to. If I if I turn the clock further back, I uh, you know no, I'm certainly a Baby Jane fanatic. I love um, Lady in a Cage, which I think I need to have a party for that when so Olivia good. wins her wins her court
0: case. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Lady in the Cage, uh, with Olivia De Havilland and James Conn. Right. Yeah. Right? That's a. There are so many films that kind of came out of the wake of Baby Jane, like exploitation, Yeah exploitation. <laughs> die Die My Darling Lady in a Cage ki- The Killing of Sister George Hush Hush with Charlotte yeah. Obviously um, I love Dead Ringer with, Yeah
1: I, <laughs> Dead with, Ringer Yes, yeah, With Betty Davis And herself Oh <laughs> my god It's yeah, didn't they do a remake of that? It's. I mean, the, did they? Yeah, I think it's the same title. I don't think it's the same. Exact- right. God, uh, Betty. No, but that's not the. That's the second time she played twins, right? Didn't she do it in an earlier feature too? David would know.
0: Yeah, uh, and the uh, David that we are referencing is film critic, historian, Our and author yes. David Del Valle, who you've done film commentaries with. Yeah,
1: just what I adore. David Del Valle is uh, is just he's. He's like our, our, our talisman, you know, he's our our key to, so our, our generation's key to, to Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and Forrey Ackerman, all these people we didn't know, but we know through him. It's true. Um, oh my God, he's just, yeah, we did a a terrible, well, a brilliant commentary for a terrible movie called The Daring (laughs) Young Men and Their Jaunty Jalopies, this uh, road trip movie, Tony Curtis and... Um, in the uh, in the 60s, so we did that for Kirikino Lorber. No, he's brilliant, and I remember I first met him, I think I knew who he was from presenting films, but a Hollywood Underground Film Festival, which was um, for a year or two at the Spielberg at the Egyptian, mm-hmm. Elric Kane, who used to run Jump Cut Cafe. Who your character in Beyond right. the Gates is named for, bringing it all yes, full circle. Yes, Elric yep. Kane is a very yep. talented writer uh, and uh, podcast host himself. He, uh, he had hosted this, and David... Um, with Ken Anger, with a very kind of truculent and, and kind of... In, he brought Ken as the host of the event in a bad mood, not wanting to answer any questions. So I just remember poor David, you know, trying to draw him out for 15 minutes before they cut the celluloid and started, right. the, started the event. But,
0: but uh, if there's anyone who can command an event and mm. keep the conversation going, even with a surly guest, it's David DelVal. I have to say... Oh, he's a master. Because yeah. it, it's as you say, he is the conduit to both new and old Hollywood. It, it, there's not a name. I, I'll spend lunches with him and coffee with him. You will reference some third supporting actor from a you know a movie that screened once he's like ah yes we had lunch one day and he's like launches into a story and it's all true like and it's what i love about him he's he is no matter how much he writes and uh how much he puts down so we have these records i'm sure there's so much more that we we just haven't heard yet and that's what i love about his adventures oh he's Yep.
1: He's brilliant. Yes, we're still trying to figure out exactly what we want to do together. I want to see him cast in something, you know, because he he is a character. He is a character like a Roddy McDowell yeah. or, or an Elric or, or one of
0: these great horror cameo v- characters, you know? He did this uh, cameo recently for one of the Puppet Master movies where he oh, and yes. uh, David Dakota um, were like these mincy Nazis. Uh, Charles Band had them be, because it was set in World War II, where they're just like uh, gay Nazi guys jumping around uh is a delight honestly
1: <laughs> that's you know that's an interesting one has anyone well no there has been i think a night of the long knives picture but the whole ernst rome story mm-hmm. you know like it would be a difficult one to tell it in an even-handed way but like right there were some very powerful and influential gay men in the early days of the nazi party and that's not something that's that widely known outside of historian circles right you know like the brown shirts were run by a gay guy and it was like a, you know, before the black shirts, there was basically kind of a very powerful paramilitary right wing gay cabal in Germany. Um, I mean, you know about this and then you know how there was this big dramatic night where Hitler stormed in with the SS and arrested everybody like yeah. during a drag. Or, I mean, it was like, it was kind of this amazing, amazing event. Um, What was it? Paragraph 41. Did you see that amazing? 41? I'm getting it wrong. There was a documentary a few years ago about the Nazi law and how it related to the the criminal code and how it related to gay people. And this amazing German filmmaker went back and interviewed camp survivors talking about the gay experience in camps. And it's unbelievable. I
0: would love to see that. I don't actually know about this film, but I'll look it up. It's hard to believe.
1: If you can believe it, it was by all accounts, worse treatment than anybody else was getting in the camps, which is kind of hard to imagine. Yeah. But, like, uh, but, like, oh, yeah, no, there's one amazing old French survivor who had trouble talking to the gay German film director because he just can't even talk to German people. 70 years later, he's so, so traumatized. Hmm. But, um, but, yeah, but you know, everything old is new again. We, we have gay paramilitary movements now. I mean, yeah. we have, or, or that tendency is being reflected within our current political. Emilio uh, you know half yeah, and four worse and worse <laughs> yes truly truly it's uh, but um, I was trying to think so um, you know I also I'm sure you love these too in terms of other recommendations pre-code films a lot of pre-code films are just gloriously weird and and almost impossible to categorize in terms of genre but um, have you seen, uh, Madame Madam Satan? That's, that's one I, I love to bring up. I think was maybe the last time I saw Ken Anger there at the cinema, Madam Satan is this pre-code Zeppelin disaster movie that has this elect ballet of electricity, uh, scene in it. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. But it's, it's one of these movies that yeah. has about 80 minutes of insufferable drawing room comedy and then Rip. 30 minutes of disaster footage at the end. That's just worth waiting I for.
0: I like a lot of the pre-code, uh, Noel Coward adaptations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to talk about some gay theatricality that was? mm. I think most of those are out on Criterion, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I uh,
1: I love God. I love Noel Coward. Was it? What did I hear recently that that I think Lawrence Olivier refused his knighthood because he wouldn't take it until Larry or until Noel got his first because he'd basically been denied so long because he was by the standards of the time such an open queer, you know, that even Sir Larry an open bisexual,
0: (laughs) you know. Well, earlier in in the show, you uh, made an offhand reference to growing up liking classic Doctor Who, Mm, and uh, this is my full circle, true nerd moment. There are, I believe, it's in the expanded novels, but there's a reference that Noel Coward was also a time traveler in Doctor Who, but he just could kind of do it, like. Whereas you know the doctor, this in one of the books. Or I think where, it, was where it, it was in one of the books. <sighs> but the, the fun thing about Doctor Who is everything's canon because when you're dealing with space and time, there's really <laughs> there's no continuity. Everything. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite
1: classic Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah, probably John Pertwee and Tom Baker are my favorites. Uh, John Pertwee is my favorite. Tom Baker, I think, is the best. Yeah. Uh, Sylvester McCoy was mine because he was the one when I was first watching it in the eighties. I love classic Doctor Who. I like the new show. I'm very excited about the new uh, the new actress. I think that's a really exciting change for the show. I think Peter Capaldi was the
0: best they've had since they brought it back. You know, because he was a curmudgeon.
1: Well, he uh, was closer to the original brief. Yeah. You know, he was the character.
0: You know? I'm a Tom Baker fan as well, but if I have to uh, dip into the classic Doctors, I've, I've been watching for years. I started when they used to show him on mm. PBS. Right? Oh, wow. I, I grew up loving it. Uh, I love Patrick, Patrick Troughton. Oh, he's wonderful. And you know why? Because he's such a grump. And I'm a grump, too. This is something listeners may not know, but I'm just frequently upset about something. So I just love, I love that. So I, I, it's funny.
1: I don't think of him as a grouch. He is, he is a little bit, perhaps a little bit petulant. The first Doctor right. was really grouchy. The second Doctor yeah. was more of like the cosmic hobo. Yeah, you know, He was playing him a that. little bit more like a Charlie Chaplin character. No, it was tragic. I mean, we almost half of his stuff is still missing. Mm, yeah. So there's so little of Pat trout, But no, I go, I go to Gallifrey one uh, every year. We have the biggest Doctor Who convention pretty much in the world here in LA and mm-hmm. it always sells out a year in advance. I may be going to one I perform with a sketch comedy group that a really good group called uh, The Idiots Lantern with some Great actors, and we may be going to the one in Chicago in November. So Doctor Who sketch comedy, and I, I do have it's it's a little behind right now, but I do have my own podcast with a with a historian at Cambridge, and we talk about classic Doctor Who stories oh, wow. for a deep historical analysis.
0: And a show that has a lot of queer connections as well throughout. Oh my the, the, sh- the run. Um, the created it was created. I mean, did you
1: see the Adventure in Time and Space uh, film? So great, right? Yeah. yeah, no, it's just like it's a Canadian businessman and a 24 year old queer Pakistani guy and a lesbian, even though they don't address it, and a lesbian yep. showrunner like. Like the first woman producer, pretty much at the BBC, created this juggernaut. You know? And
0: Verity Lambert. That's yeah. her name. Yeah, yeah, Verity yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Lambert, yeah. So it was good. interesting that because she was so private. Even biographies leave that detail out. Yeah. And like they just, out of respect, didn't want to include it. But it's like everybody knew. You know? Yeah. Was, um, uh, no, I do love it. My latest fixation in that universe has been Blake Seven. I don't
0: know if you ever saw that. It's almost like a spinoff, it's oh, a Terry
1: Nation that's TV right. show.
0: That's well, I listen to a lot of the big Finnish audios mm. that are the expanded sure. universe with the classic Doctors, and they recently did a run of uh, Blake 7 audios that right. were full cast, and they were really great.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, I have to catch up on that. I've listened to some of
0: it, but I just adore it. No, it's like, for
1: if, if you like Doctor Who, it's, it's more of like 1984 in space. Right. It's really very... I always tell people, imagine if the Star Trek Federation were totalitarian and evil. If we had a less optimistic view of military power and conquest in the universe.
0: And just to bring things back around to the theme of the show, of course, Mm. we did talk about uh, the queer connection to uh, Doctor Who. But just so you don't think we're going too far afield, Doctor Who, for me, has had some of the best short form horror stories oh no question in in genre period I mean even even some of the most recent ones uh, blink the, the first one that introduced sure. the weeping angels was a Hugo award-winning horror short Uh and, yeah, no, Heaven Sent
1: was a, a masterpiece. That was the one-hander, did you see? It was a season nine uh, yes, finale, yeah. right? Where it's just him versus the death figure. Mm-hmm. It was just extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Or then there, there are themes that they get to in the show that I'm very surprised that a horror filmmaker didn't get to first. Mm-hmm. I believe it was uh, a season eight episode where... He talks about how when we pause, when we talk, it's we think that it's a natural thing, but it's actually there's a, an mm. unseen force that feeds upon the the, the oh, space. Oh yes, yeah. yes, the silence, right? Yeah, right, and I, I or the, and then the characters of the silence. Right. You can only know that they're there when you're looking at them, and the second you look away, you forget. That's horrifying. That's just terrifying. Uh, I'm, I'm such a Oh no a fan and so of, many of the classic yeah.
1: you know I, I, have, I haven't done it in a couple of years but I often will do classic Doctor Who marathons for Halloween mm-hmm. because there's just so much great content you know the brain of Morbius is the ultimate Frankenstein story yeah. pyramids of Mars is one of the great mummy stories horror fang rock horror fang know, rock know, is great it's yeah. fantastic you know I show yeah. the demons uh, a really great a Beltane kind of wicker man story and uh, the Deadly Assassin is one of my favorite, or um, Talents of Wang Chiang, for a fan of the opera story. You know, now, is The Deadly Assassin
0: the one where the master is basically like the the Grim Reaper? Rip- yeah, yeah, it's yeah, great. Yeah.
1: Uh, that one I love because it, it, that actor only Peter Pratt. I don't know if he did any Hammer. He is only really known for that by genre fans, but he was a huge Gilbert and Sullivan star in the fifties, and I have his records. Like, so I was I always love the fact that that they hired this great quite near the end of his career, this great stage actor to play a, a mask role in that oh. as
0: a master. Uh well we probably could do a whole other podcast about Doctor Who. Yes, but, yes, um, Just to kind of wrap things up because we're nearing the end of, mm. of this of our time here today. Uh, what are you working on now, and what's next? And we, sure. We talked a little bit about Beyond the Gates too. I assume you'll be appearing in that.
1: Yes, I hope so. Um, uh, as announced right now, it's uh, Brian Usna is uh, involved producing. I know Barbara's <laughs> producing again, and she and I are hopefully both going to be in it. Excellent. There have been a few different drafts, uh, but I think the current uh, the current conceit is it'll be us. And right. who else? We're not sure. Um, and, of course, Jackson involved. And, and you know, it's like... And that's a challenge. When you come back and you, and you have a moderately successful first film or first film as a director, it's like, boy, they sharpen the knives. You know, yeah. Your second film better be good. And you can't just remake the same movie for right. 25% more money. It's like this, it has to be a step up. And and, uh, and Jackson is just, uh, I think, a very talented guy. And he's been tremendously loyal uh, to, to me and to everyone. It's just like there's a, a wonderful family of some of the crew and the cast uh, in terms of people who work with him, so so yeah, I'm excited about that. That probably won't be until next year at some time. Right. I have a film coming out, uh, hopefully in time for Christmas, called "All the Creatures Were Stirring." Oh great! It's, Is that a
0: Christmas horror film? Yes, yeah, God, okay.
1: Christmas horror was it was like all last year. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, all the creatures were stirring. It's Becca and Dave McKendry you know, oh, Becca, I love Becca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, from Fangoria and yeah. uh, Shockwaves Pod, mm-hmm. and and uh, so yeah, they wrote and directed it. It's an episodic anthology horror movie, and a lot of great people in it. Many people you would know uh, Graham Skipper is also in a Chase Williams and Jocelyn Donahue um, I was just in one. I was in like a an office party massacre uh, scene that was pretty fun I, I haven't seen it yet so I'm optimistic about that one uh, so hopefully that'll be coming out this year at some point and other films that are coming out as well Um, I mentioned I think earlier the reanimator soundtrack we recorded last year Mm -hmm. and hopefully that will come out so I don't know the details I'm impatient about it I really want it to come out soon and um and it should come back, oh, and I, I'm not supposed to announce anything specific about it, but by the way, the Steve Allen Theater is a really special place. That's where the reanimated the musical started. It's where a lot of great comedy acts and musical acts go through there in Los Feliz. Um, and it's being torn down to become condos, you know, because this is L.A. Yeah. 2017. So our last night, I believe, is Friday, November 2nd. And the, there will be a, like a big last night farewell. Um. So I'm sure there will be some reanimated the musical presence there and other stuff. And, uh, and other than that, just you know, kind of uh, kind of looking for the next thing. I've um, I've been uh, I've been blessed blessed to work with some amazing people, and I'm really excited to see what what comes out next. I um hopefully we we may see a return production of the Sirens of Titan next cool. year. I'd really I'd love for you to see that uh, you know because that was really a special thing working with Stuart and doing Vonnegut material. And uh, and we've been talking about doing another run of the Exorcist Rock Musical for a while, but. But yeah, no, waiting for all of the creatures we're stirring and then Beyond the Gates 2 and the reanimator soundtrack. Those are kind of the immediate things right now. Great.
0: And uh, one final question. Oh, certainly. Because Beyond the Gates is about a haunted board game, if you were to be haunted by a board game from childhood, what would you choose? Yeah. A board game from childhood
1: haunted by... Uh, <laughs> funny you you mentioned that. The one that's haunting me right now because it's supposed to be coming in the mail, I, I don't know. I, I call this extended phase my superannuated adolescence. You know, at a certain point, you're supposed to give away childish things and not care about Rocky Horror or horror movies or toys anymore, <laughs> and obviously I haven't, well, we've done, all failed at haven't done well with that. <laughs> uh, no, I, the one I had as a child that I was fascinated with and I loved, I never played... Um, I played it for the first time recently. It's coming in the mail. It's one of these great lost games. It's worth the fortune. Hard to find, but really, really amazing. It's the Dune board game. I'm a big fan of Frank Herbert's Dune. Was Uh, it
0: a movie tie-in board game, though? uh,
1: No, they reissued it for the movie, but no, it was Avalon Hill, the great uh, strategy board game. They had the rights for a few years Mm in the 70s. They made this groundbreaking game. Beautiful impossibly difficult game for six people that can take up to 15 or 20 hours I mean you have no idea how long it's going to take (laughs) and I played it for the first time recently and it was utterly engrossing it's just like I'm so ready to return to Arrakis Uh, I just worked through all the six Dune books again and and I'm excited. Yes, yeah, somebody has that. They're developing another feature for it. Yeah. Um, they did reissue the board game in 84. If you ever see it, there's a, they didn't license Sting, but they got a s- cheap Sting lookalike to put on the board game. <laughs> but it's worth a fortune now because they lost a license right. many years ago. Um, so I'm kind of, yeah, either that or diplomacy. Well, an, un- an unplayable game, you know, right. one of these games nobody
0: can win. Well, I don't know <laughs> if I would want to be haunted by something I can't beat. But... <laughs> well, that's, but that's, that's a g- certain kind of immortality. The, g- you know? the game of life. Uh, <laughs> Jesse, where can people
1: find you? Oh gosh, I'm I'm old timey. I, I'm at Jesse Merlin on Twitter, and I'm JesseMerlin on on uh, on the internet. And I uh, I um, I'm delighted to to talk with you, and thank you for taking the time. It's uh, it's an honor to be in such august company with your other guests.
0: Well, I'm so happy you took the time to come and join us today. Uh, thank you so much, and good luck to you and I. Uh, We'll be keeping an eye out. Uh, listeners, check out all of Jesse's amazing performances that you can find on film. And if you're in L.A. or wherever he may be performing on stage, please go see him. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.